All right, well, we're going to continue on with our teaching series. We are on part seven. This is an eight-part series, so we've been in it for almost two months. We're going to wrap it up next week. But today, our teaching series, Legacy, what we've been doing is we've been going through the Bible from cover to cover, doing a survey of the entire Bible, and then within that survey, looking at how the people of the Bible are still speaking to us today. Why is this so important? Because the more we understand the Bible and the more we understand that the Bible is still speaking to us today, the more likely we will be to read it and to read it regularly. And we know that if we read our Bible daily, then we're going to grow in our spiritual journey. We're going to overcome the struggles of our lives and we're going to be successful in everything that God has called us to do. And it starts with the simple discipline of reading our Bible and reading it every day. So we've got our slide up here that we've been looking at every week. We've taken the Bible, broken it up into eight different sections. So the 39 books of the Old Testament are represented by five sections, and the 27 books of the New Testament are represented by three sections. And we have been taking one Sunday to break down each section. And so last week we were in the historical books of the New Testament, which is the four Gospels and the book of Acts. And we looked at those, and we looked at some words of Jesus that were unique to each of the Gospels. Today, we're going to move into Paul's epistles. And you can see up on the screen that Paul's epistles represent a huge chunk of the New Testament. He wrote 13 different letters that became a part of the Bible. And we're going to go through those today and have a greater understanding of, of Paul's ministry and, and all that he was writing about. Each week, I'm giving you a Bible fact. Sometimes it's a fun fact. Sometimes it's a serious fact. This one's a little bit more on the fun side. But I want to look at the order that Paul's epistles are in the New Testament. Because here's a shocker if you've been listening to any of these messages in this teaching series, that they're not in chronological order. Right? That's been a recurring theme over and over again as we look at all these different sections of the Bible. They're not in chronological order. It would have made so much sense just to put the books of Paul in the exact order that he wrote them. But no, they didn't do that. So let's look at this. What is the order of Paul's epistles? First, we need to know what an epistle is. An epistle is a written communication. It's a long, formal letter usually intended for instruction. The Greek word was epistelline, which means to send news. That was how they passed the news along in these days, right? We didn't, we didn't go to Google. We didn't get our news from Facebook. They would just write it down, and couriers would send the news from, from village to village or city to city through these written communications that were called epistles. And so in the New Testament, we have several of these epistles written by Paul that we're going to look at today. And then we also have epistles written by other apostles that we're going to look at next Sunday. So these were long letters that Paul wrote intended to give instruction. So how are they broken up? Why do we have them in a certain order in the Bible? Well, first, they're broken up between letters to churches and letters to individuals. So of the 13 letters that Paul wrote, the first nine are letters to churches, and the next four are letters to individuals. So these nine letters that he wrote to churches, you can see a couple of them, he wrote two different letters. He wrote these to seven different churches. Five of these seven churches he planted himself. These were churches that were birthed out of his ministry, and then after he planted them and left, he would write letters back to them. Two of them are letters that he wrote to churches that he had never been to. 
The church at Rome, he wrote the book of Romans to a church that he had not yet visited. And the book of Colossians was to the church at Colossae, which was a church that he had never visited. But the other five were ones that he planted himself. And then you can see that he wrote books to individuals named Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. These were young men that he was discipling as church leaders, and he would write letters to them. So that's the first part of the separation, is they're separated into churches and individuals. Now, the second part of the separation is just going to blow your mind. Are you ready for this? They're in order from longest to shortest. That's it, all right? We expect some kind of spiritual answer, right? Like there's some kind of divine order that they were put in. No, they just put them in order from longest to shortest. So his nine letters to the churches, they're just longest to shortest. And his four letters to individuals, they're just longest to shortest. That's it. So you were expecting something amazing, and it wasn't. It really wasn't amazing. But that's why we have these books in this order in the Bible. So... It would have made more sense to put them in chronological order so we could understand the progression of Paul's ministry, but we'll just have to do that ourselves. So we're going to look at these books from Romans through Philemon, and in order to do this, we really need to look at a timeline of Paul's life so that we can see where all of these fit in. And so I'm going to go through a timeline of Paul's life, and in the timeline, we're going to look at the five churches that he planted that are in the Bible. He planted a lot more than five churches, but the five that are in the Bible... And then we're also going to look at where he wrote all of his letters. And so we're going to look at this in the context of three missionary journeys that Paul went on. Paul's home-based church was the church in the city of Antioch. And the church of Antioch sent him out on a missionary journey. He would go out for a few years, and then he would come back to Antioch. He would refresh and recoup for a little bit, and then they would send him back out again. And he'd be gone for a few years and he would come back. He did this three times. He had three missionary journeys that he was sent on. Then after his missionary journeys was a season of imprisonment where he was actually in jail three different times. And we want to look at that as well. So here we go. Paul's first missionary journey. Now, when we study ancient history and we give dates, we need to understand that scholars don't always exactly agree on the dates. But they're all pretty close to each other. And so if I say 47 to 49 A.D., you might get a scholar that says, no, it was 46 to 48 or it was 48 to 50. But you get the idea that we're in the range of what happened. So Paul was sent out on his first missionary journey in 47 A.D. We know that he gave his life to Jesus around 34 A.D., which means he actually had 13 years of preparation before he was sent out on his first mission. See, a lot of times when you read the Bible, it just feels like everything happens immediately, right? But no, he actually had 13 years of relative anonymity where he was being discipled, where Jesus was downloading revelation into him. He went away and spent time alone in the deserts. He had 13 years of preparation before he was sent out on his first missionary journey. So 47 to 49 AD, he went out on his first journey. This is Acts 13.1 to Acts 15.39. And this is where he planted churches in Galatia. Now, Galatia is not a city. Galatia is a large region that has lots of cities in it. So when we talk about the churches of Galatia, we're talking about churches in individual cities. These are places like Iconium, Lystra, Derb, uh, lots of different cities in the area of Galatia. So he went out on his first missionary journey through the region of Galatia, planted a bunch of churches there. Now... There is a lot of disagreement among scholars as to when he wrote the book of Galatians. 
Some scholars think that the moment he got back to Antioch from his first journey, that he wrote a letter back to them. And then this was right before the Jerusalem Council, where um, the church decided it was okay for Gentiles to receive Jesus and be a part of the church. So he gets home from his first missionary journey, writes a letter to the Galatians, and then goes to Jerusalem to be a part of the Jerusalem Council. Then he goes on his second missionary journey from 50 to 52 A.D., and this is from Acts 1540 to 1822. During this journey, he planted the church at Philippi, the church at Thessalonica, and also the church at Corinth. And out of these three years that he was on the road, he spent over half of it just in Corinth. He stayed for a long time and, and, and ministered and, and built up the church at Corinth. Immediately after he left Thessalonica, it's one of my least favorite books in the Bible to try to pronounce. Anybody else who grew up with a speech impediment, you know what I'm talking about. All right. As soon as he left there and got to Corinth, he began writing letters back to Thessalonica. So, so within like three months of planting the church and leaving, he already wrote 1 Thessalonians. And then a few months after that, he wrote 2 Thessalonians. So these very well could be the earliest letters that we have from Paul are the two letters to the church at Thessalonica. Then he goes on his third missionary journey from 53 to 57 AD. This is Acts 18.23 to 21.14. And during this time is when he plants the church at Ephesus. And even though he's on the road for four years, he spends about half of that four years just at Ephesus, building up the Ephesian church. During this time is when he writes the two letters to the Corinthian church. Now, scholars believe that he actually wrote four letters to the Corinthian church, but only two of them were preserved in the Bible. So he wrote the two letters to the Corinthian church. This is where other scholars believe that he most likely wrote Galatians. And this is also when he wrote the book to the church at Rome, even though he had never visited the church at Rome before. He would visit them eventually as a prisoner. But before he visited them, he wrote the book of Romans. After he completes his third missionary journey, he then goes to Jerusalem where he is arrested and begins the season that we know as his imprisonment season. He spent two years in prison in Jerusalem and Caesarea. This was about 58 to 60 A.D. This is Acts 21, 15 to 26, 32. And we learned last week that Luke was with him when he went to Jerusalem. And these two years that he's in prison in Jerusalem is when Luke was gathering all of his resources and writing his gospel because he was a companion of Paul waiting for Paul to get out of jail. Well, Paul didn't get out of jail. After two years in Jerusalem, he gets sent to Rome. On his way to Rome, the ship is wrecked. He ends up on a deserted island. He gets bitten by a poisonous snake, but still manages to survive. Eventually, they get rescued off the island, and he still makes it to Rome to be a prisoner. And he spends two years in Rome on house arrest. This is a little bit better than prison, because, I mean, he's still confined to his house, but he has the freedom to receive guests. He's able to minister to the Roman church at the time. Uh, but he's on house arrest for two years. And this is the rest of the book of Acts, chapters 27 and 28. And this is where the book of Acts actually ends, is while he's in his first imprisonment in Rome. During that time, he writes four of his epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. These are known as the prison epistles because he wrote these while he was on house arrest. Then he's released by the Romans. He's free to go, so he goes back to Ephesus, installs Timothy as the pastor of the Ephesian church, and ministers throughout Macedonia and Asia Minor. 
for about two or three years. During this time, he writes 1 Timothy and he writes Titus. Then Nero becomes the new emperor of Rome. And if you know your history, Nero is the one who set off the greatest persecution of Christians. And it was Nero who has Paul rearrested, brought back to prison in Rome. And this time, Paul is not set free. He's executed. He has his head cut off on the chopping block. But right before he's executed, he writes his final letter, which is 2 Timothy. And 2 Timothy is a profound book because you can hear it in his writing that he knows he's about to die. And he's writing one last letter before he dies. So that is the timeline of Paul's ministry. And you can see where it fits in that he's planting churches and he's writing letters. So let's look at these 13 letters really quickly. I'm going to blow through these guys really fast. Here we go. The book of Romans, written towards the end of his third missionary journey to a church he had not yet visited. What was the theme of Romans? The theme was the gospel. The book of Romans is the greatest presentation of the gospel that we have. It's God's righteousness being declared through his plan for salvation. In 1 Corinthians, which was written during his time while he was leading the Ephesian church on his third missionary journey, what is the book of 1 Corinthians? It's, the whole book is one long correction. The church of Corinth, Corinth had all kinds of problems. They were doing stuff wrong. There was sin in the church. There was wrong teaching in the church. So the entire book of 1 Corinthians is just confronting and rebuking wrong behavior. And, and then trying to teach what was right behavior in the church. And so it's like every chapter in 1 Corinthians, he's dealing with another wrong behavior. 2 Corinthians, he wrote after visiting Corinth. So he wrote 1 Corinthians, visited Corinth, and then wrote 2 Corinthians. And like I said, somewhere in the process there, he believes that Paul also wrote two other letters to the Corinthians. The theme of 2 Corinthians is Paul defending his apostleship and his authority in Christ. He was establishing what it means to be a person under the authority of Christ and to have that authority as a leader of the church. Then we have Galatians. Again, we have two different theories on when Galatians was written. It might have been written shortly before the Jerusalem Council, right after he got back from Galatia, or it might have been written six to eight years later when he was on his third missionary journey. The theme of Galatians is that we are justified in Christ, not by Jewish law. You see, after he planted the churches in Galatia and he left, Jewish people began to come into the church and say to the Gentiles, hey, you know what? It's great that you're in church now, but to be a follower of Jesus, you also have to be Jewish. And they were telling them all to follow the Jewish law. They were all getting circumcised and, 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 and trying to follow the Jewish law. And so Paul writes a letter to Galatia saying that you're justified by Jesus and Jesus alone, not by trying to follow the Jewish law. Then we have Ephesians, which was one of the prison epistles. Three of these, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, he wrote at the same time and had the same guy deliver all three letters at the same time. The theme of Ephesians is our identity in Christ and how to apply that identity in living out our lives. Philippians, he also wrote when he was under arrest in Rome. And the theme of Philippians is finding joy with Jesus at the center of your life. Philippians is all about being filled with joy. Colossians is a, a letter that he wrote to a church that he had never visited, but the theme of Colossians is the preeminence of Christ. What does that mean? It means that Jesus is above all. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Everything was created by him and through him and for him, and Jesus holds all things together. Colossians just teaches the preeminence of Jesus. Then we have the two letters that he wrote 
to the church at Thessalonica. And again, these may be the earliest letters that we have from Paul. His first one he wrote to the church all about experiencing spiritual growth by being in community together. And then his second letter was all about finding hope in Jesus' second coming. And that hope would help them to grow and persevere even in the face of suffering. Then we have his two letters that he wrote to his disciple Timothy. The first one he wrote in Macedonia in 63 AD, Timothy being the young pastor leading the church of Ephesus, and the theme was setting the standard as a Christian leader. And then 2 Timothy, like we said, Paul wrote this right before he was executed. And the theme to Timothy was to continue to lead the church in sound doctrine, even in the face of hardship. He wrote the letter to Titus right about the same time he wrote his first letter to Timothy. Titus was pastoring the church on the island of Crete. And the theme of Titus is that sound doctrine produces right living and good deeds. He just kept telling Titus, you just keep teaching the truth, and the truth will produce right living. You stick to sound doctrine, and it will produce good deeds in the lives of people. And then finally, we have Philemon, which was one of the prison epistles as well. And this is an interesting book because he writes this to a Christian leader named Philemon and the entire letter was encouraging Philemon to show God's grace and mercy to an escaped slave. Why this is fascinating is because Paul doesn't address slavery at all. He never takes a moral stand for or against slavery. He never talks about the issue of slavery. But what he says to Philemon is he says, you've experienced the grace of Jesus This escaped slave who's coming home to you has experienced the grace of Jesus. And so you should show the same forgiveness to this slave that God has shown to you. And it's a very short letter, but it's a profound letter that he wrote to Philemon. So there you have it. The 13 letters of Paul makes up the bulk of what we have in terms of the New Testament church and how we as a church should function, how we as followers of Jesus should live our lives. Most of what we have comes from these 13 letters from Paul. So let's let's jump into today, what is our legacy from Paul? What would Paul speak to us today? And I mean, there is a treasure trove of information that I could pull from, but I decided if we're really talking about legacy, let's look at the last words that he wrote. What were the last things that he said right before he was executed? So we're going to go to 2 Timothy, and we're going to go to the last chapter of 2 Timothy, and let's read what is the last thing that he would charge his young disciple to do knowing this was his last chance to give him any instruction. We're going to read verses 1 through 8 together, and then we're going to break it down. Paul says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myth. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. 
In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So let's look at this. What is the first thing that Paul would say to us today? He would say this. Remember what is most important. Let's look at verse 1. And verse 1 is one of these verses that we would usually just skip right over. Why? Because the instructions all start in verse 2. So we think, ah, verse 1, that's just like an introductory verse. Let's jump past that and start reading the instructions. But that would be a mistake because verse 1 is where he gives the why behind the instructions. And if we don't have the why behind the instructions, we're less likely to actually follow the instructions. So the why behind it is remember what is most important. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God. The first priority is the presence of God. That we need to daily be going after the presence of God. Daily be dwelling in his presence. We have 24-7 access to the presence of God. We don't have to go on a pilgrimage to the other side of the world. We don't need a priest to go for us. We don't have to do some ritual and then crawl underneath a curtain so we can stand in the presence of God. We don't have to do any of that. We have 24-hour access all day, every day. The presence of God is available to us. And yet if we get so pragmatic in our lives, we forget the presence of God. And then he says and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. The second priority we need to focus on is that there is a great judgment coming. And that great judgment is going to do two things. The first thing, it's going to separate the wheat from the tares. It's going to determine who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. But that's only half of the judgment. The other half is that those that are going to heaven are going to stand before Jesus and give an accounting of how they stewarded their lives. What did we do with the life that God gave us here on earth? And if we can remember that that day is coming when we are going to have to give an account before the great judge Jesus about how we spent our lives, that remembering that priority will affect how we live today. And then he says, and by his appearing. What is his appearing? It's that Jesus is coming back a second time. And that we would remember to focus on the fact that Jesus is coming back a second time. And that everything we do in this life is preparation for the life that we're going to live when Jesus comes back a second time. And then he says, and his kingdom. The fourth priority is the eternal kingdom of God that we're going to spend forever living in the kingdom of God and that eternities hang in the balance based on how we live today. If we would keep these four things to be the main thing, if every day we would live in the constant awareness of the presence of God, that there is a great judgment throne that we're going to have to stand before Jesus, that Jesus is coming back a second time in bodily form and that there is an eternal kingdom of God that is going to be established here on the earth, if we remember those things, it will affect whether or not we follow the rest of the instructions. Paul is saying to us, remember what is most important. And then he would say this to us today. Always be ready to speak the truth. Always be ready to speak the truth. 
verses 2 through 4. He says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. That's a pretty specific list of instructions of how we're supposed to live. Why? Because the time is going to come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. Why is this critical? You see, a couple chapters earlier, he's talking to Timothy about how people are going to turn away from the truth and, 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 and only listen to the lie. But in that chapter, he's talking about the people outside the church. Here in chapter 4, he's talking about the people inside the church. He's referring to followers of Jesus that are not going to endure sound doctrine, but instead are going to gather up teachers for themselves that will tickle their ears and fulfill their own desires. Listen to this quote. They have a desire to dabble with novelty. They covet new fashionable ideas and long for the excitement of having their ears teased by the satisfying but harmless mumbling of pseudo-scholarship. Such speakers toy with the minds of the hearers, but leave the intellect uninformed, the conscience unchallenged, and the will set in a direction away from God. And we could say that this is a description of some churches and some teachers today. That they've turned away from sound doctrine, and they just all want to gather together under a teacher who's going to tickle their ears and make them feel good about the way that they're living. But he says to Timothy, no, you, you need to always be ready to speak the truth. And he says, reprove, rebuke. What does that mean, reprove and rebuke? It means to confront and correct. You see somebody who's falling for a lie, confront it and correct it. You see somebody who's falling away from God and falling into wrong behavior, confront it and correct it. You see somebody who's trying to justify a certain lifestyle, confront it and correct it. Be willing to speak the truth in season and out of season. What does in season and out of season mean? It means when you're scheduled to speak and when you're not scheduled to speak. It means when it's convenient for you and when it's not convenient for you. It means when they want to hear it and when they don't want to hear it, right? In season and out of season, correct and confront. But it doesn't stop right there. It also says this, listen. It says exhort. What does exhort mean? To encourage, to lift up, to build up with great patience and instruction. See, here's the problem. A lot of Christians get caught up in the confront and correct, right? I like to go around and confront and correct. I see something wrong, I'm going to confront it, and I'm going to correct it. But if that's all we do and we leave out the ex exhortation, the building up, and we leave out the patience, and we leave out the love, and we leave out the instruction, then we've just become Pharisees just like from the Bible. We're just walking around wagging our finger at people, trying to make ourselves feel like we're better than them. That's not what Paul is looking for here. Paul is looking for leadership where when people are falling away and people are on the right track, we would have the boldness and the courage to tell them the truth but then also to encourage and build them up, to be patient with them while they're on their journey. That even though they don't get it right away, we're still patient with them. And then we also instruct them. We don't just tell them they're wrong. We also instruct them so they know how to change. Listen to this quote from Robbie Gallaty. He says this, 
Could it be that we have spent a lot of our time teaching people what they're saved from and we haven't spent time teaching people what they're saved for? You see, if all we do is confront and correct, then all we're doing is telling people what they're saved from, right? Stop cussing. Stop drinking. Stop mistreating your spouse. Stop getting in fights, right? That's, we're just telling people what they're saved from. But we're missing out on the most important part of discipleship, which is building people up to what they're saved for, which is you are saved for great fruitfulness. You are saved for the glory of God. You are saved to change people's lives. You are saved to be a part of a community and a family and to find your place in that community. And we miss that when we're just being Pharisees walking around wagging our finger. We miss that when we just make political stands or we just stand against groups of people without talking about what it takes to change. And not just telling them they're wrong, but giving a picture of what it is that God has for them. Always be ready to tell the truth. Then Paul would say this to us. He would say, fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your ministry in verse 5. Very straightforward. He says, but you, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. The key word there is your. That every one of us has a different ministry that we are called to. You see, I'm not supposed to fill Lewis's ministry. I'm not supposed to fulfill Raph's ministry. I'm supposed to fulfill my ministry. And I'm not supposed to compare myself to those guys in their ministry. I'm supposed to compare myself to the ministry God has called me to. That we all have a very specific and personal call. We all have a very specific ministry in life to fulfill. Now, the first three instructions he gives are general for everybody. Right? Be sober-minded. What does that mean? It means keep your head. Stay level. Don't be run by emotion. Don't be run by whatever false doctrine is blowing around. Don't be run by whatever popular opinion is. Don't be run by things like alcohol or intoxication. Be sober-minded. Keep a level head. Stay focused on what is real. And then he says endure hardship. That is a general one for all of us. Paul promises Timothy... Anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The key words there are everyone and will be. It's not some people and maybe. It's everyone and will be. Every one of us will face hardship as we try to walk out this life following Jesus. So when it happens, Paul just says, endure it. Don't be surprised by it. Don't give up because of it. Endure it. And then he says, do the work of an evangelist. That's a general one. We would prefer it wasn't, right? We would prefer that that's that specific one where he's just talking to professional church leaders that are, but no, that one's for everybody. Do the work of an evangelist. Every one of us is responsible for sharing the gospel, leading people to Jesus, bringing people to church, seeing them get discipled. And then we have the specific one. Fulfill your ministry. What has God called you to do? What gifts has he put in you? What people has he surrounded you with? What passion has he instilled in your heart? Fulfill your ministry. Don't compare yourself to anybody else. Fulfill your ministry. And then Paul would say this. He would say, live your life 
so that you may die with no regrets. Live your life so that you might die with no regrets. In verse 6, he says, listen, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. He says, I've given everything I've got. I'm about to be poured out. So he summarizes his entire life in three phrases. Verse 7, three phrases. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Paul was a man who was about to die, but he was okay because he was dying with no regrets. Was he dying with no regrets because he always did everything right? No. Because he lived a perfect life from a child to an adult? No. There was a season of Paul's life where he was a despicable human being. Murdered people, had people thrown in prison, broke up families, invaded people's homes. There was a season of his life where he was a horrible person. Yet he was dying with no regrets. Not because he was perfect, not because he did everything right, but because he could make these three statements about his life. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. He says, I have finished the course. That gives the picture of running a race. But again, everybody's race is a different course. Some are longer, some are shorter. Some have more challenges. Some go to different places. Our job is to finish our course, the one that God laid out for us. Our job is to keep fighting the good fight. Our job is to keep our faith in Jesus Christ so that at the end of our life, we could die with no regrets. Listen, when you are on your deathbed, there are some things that you're not going to regret, right? You're not going to be like, man, I wish I'd watched more TV. I just, you know, it just, it would have been, I just, I missed out. I could have watched more TV in my life. Right, yeah. I wish I had stayed at the office an hour longer each day. That, my life would have been so much better if I'd have stayed at the office another hour every day, right? I wish I had played more video games. I really missed out. I just wish I had, no one thinks about that on their deathbed. But on their deathbed, they say things like, I wish I'd spent more time with my children. I wish I had stayed in touch with the people that mattered most to me. I wish I'd forgiven those people instead of holding on to all that anger. I wish I'd shared the gospel more. I wish I'd discipled more people. I wish I'd made a greater difference in the places where I lived and the churches that I went to. Those are the things we regret. Paul says to us today, let's live our lives in such a way that we don't die with those regrets. But if we keep those four priorities and we speak the truth and we fulfill our ministry so that all of us could say, you know what, we have fought the good fight. We have kept the faith. God gave me a course and I finished it. Last thing is this. Let me invite the worship team to come back up today. Paul says, if you've done all of those things, the last instruction is claim your reward. You've done it all and there comes a time to claim your reward in verse 8, he says, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That word there for loved his appearing means longed for. There is a crown of righteousness waiting for all those who have longed for the second coming of Jesus. We have longed to see the kingdom of God. We have longed, we have put the work in. 
And there is a crown, and Paul calls it a crown of righteousness. James, in his epistle, calls it the crown of life. Peter, in his epistle, calls it the crown of glory. They all use a different name, but they're talking about the same thing, that there is a reward at the end of this. And they're all writing to a Roman culture. And so the Roman culture understands the reward of a crown because that was the big trophy back in those days. They didn't have the medals or the trophies. They had crowns. And they were usually laurel leaf crowns, right? They would get these branches from the laurel tree and they would weave these crowns. And then if you won the race, if you were the victor, they would put the crown on your head and you knew that you were running for a crown. But that was a perishable crown. Those leaves were just going to dry up in a few days and die. There would be no evidence of that crown. There would be nothing left of it. And Paul is saying, if there are people that would train and focus and live their lives to run a race so that you could put some tree branches on your head, then shouldn't we live our lives and run our race in such a way that when all is said and done, we will claim a crown of righteousness? And that the apostles imply that this crown is in addition to heaven, right? That there is actually a reward that makes heaven even more fulfilling. And that's amazing to me because if you just describe the basics of heaven, that sounds pretty ridiculous already. Like heaven sounds pretty good. Yet three different apostles in the Bible said that there is a reward in heaven that makes heaven even better. And that reward is claimed by those who live their lives to fulfill the ministry that God has given you. Whew. Claim your reward. See, now all my video game players get it with me now, right? They were mad at me a second ago when I made fun of playing video games. But now they're like, oh, claiming a reward at the end? Heck yeah, last man standing, battle royale, I get the win. <laughs> Claim your reward. There is a reward in heaven for a life that is lived to fulfill the ministry that God has given you. Let's claim our reward. Let's live the life that we need to live today so that we can claim that reward in the future. Will you stand with me today? We're going to finish up. Now, I'd have an exercise that I would have students do whenever I was teaching a public speaking class. What I would do is I would have a student get up in front of the class and I would have them tell the story of the three little pigs. And as they told it, I would have a stopwatch out and I would time them exactly how long it took them to tell the story. And I'd be like, all right, it took you two minutes to tell the story. Now I want you to tell the same story, but I want you to tell it in just one minute. And then they would do it. They'd be like, okay, now I want you to tell the story in 30 seconds. And they would do it. And be like, okay, now I want you to tell the story in 10 seconds. Right, And when they only have 10 seconds, it was like, there's three pigs, there's three different houses, there's a wolf blowing, the brick house was the best one, end of story. Right? <laughs> the less and less time you have, you're forced to prioritize and only focus on the most important parts of the story. Well, the same thing is true when you're coming to the end of your life. And Paul was coming to the end of his life, and he had very little time left, and he had to prioritize, what's the most important thing I can say right now? So when we read 2 Timothy chapter 4, we shouldn't just blow it off and be like, well, Timothy was a pastor, so that only applies to pastors. Pastor Aaron, you do all that stuff. I'm good. No. 
Paul was writing the most important thing he could think of with the last few days he had left. And we should all take it that seriously. That we would focus on these four priorities. And if we focus on these four priorities, we will fulfill our ministry. Because every day we will see God at work. And we will see the eternal purpose in every decision and everything that we do throughout the day. So as we finish today, I'm going to invite you to just take some time right now just to meditate on this. You say, wow, pastor, meditation, that's not super exciting. That's okay. I want God to speak to us today as we meditate on this. And that is this, that if we would ask ourselves the question, if tomorrow I start focusing on those four priorities, the presence of God, the judgment seat of Christ, the second coming of Jesus, and the eternal kingdom of God. If I start focusing on those five, four priorities tomorrow, what will my life look like tomorrow? And then what will it look like on Tuesday? And then what will it look like on Wednesday? What will it look like next month and next year? Can we just meditate on that right now and just allow God to speak to us and give us a vision of our lives lived with the priorities and the instructions that Paul set before us. I'm going to have the worship team play a song one last time, but I don't want you singing the song. I want you meditating on this thought and allowing Holy Spirit to speak into your life right now.